Sometimes we have a narrow definition of how we expect God to work in our lives. We think that he's only going to speak to us in one way or do it do things in one way with certain people. But I find that God uses anything and everything to bring us back to him. That's today on the Tower Hill Podcast. Hey, this is Marisa from the Tower Hill production team. Thanks so much for listening to our Tower Hill podcast. As summer winds down and the thoughts of fall commitments no longer loom in the distance, but instead are right around the corner, it's amazing the variety of emotions we travel through in even just the course of a day. Maybe a little bit of sorrow that the carefree days of summer are evaporating, or maybe a little bit of relief that cooler weather is on its way. Or maybe kind of a a weird combination of fear and anxiety for school starting, but at the same time craving structure and falling into a routine. Whatever the emotion is that comes with the anticipation of summer ending and fall beginning or any transition of the seasons, there can be a comfort in knowing what's to come, good or bad, better or worse. We think, okay, I know it's coming, so I can do this and I can do that, I'll be ready. But knowing what's to come is not always available. In fact, quite often we don't know what's to come, and if we do, plans can change in an instant. As we continue our sermon series on 12 stones and how the stories of the lives of the people in the Bible relate to our own stories, Pastor Julie explores the story of Lydia, a somewhat lesser known person in the Bible, but how her all-in faith gave her courage to do extraordinary things for God that she was not expecting. and had no advance notice of. Lydia's story reflects trust without borders and flexibility to deal with changes in the moment and peace through it all, letting God do amazing things through us. Let's check it out right now. Will you let God use you to do something extraordinary? That's a great segue to our sermon today. We are wrapping up or coming to the end of our summer sermon series called 12 Stones, Stories That Shape Our Faith. And if you've been with us all summer long, every week we have been introduced to the story of a different person from the Bible and tried to connect their story to our story. We were in the Old Testament most of the summer, it seems like, and then we started with uh, the New Testament with Timothy a couple weeks ago. And then Stephen, both were really significant in uh, the early church, those first few centuries after the resurrection of Christ. And today I'm going to introduce you to another person who is very significant in the early church, but you may not have ever heard of this person whose name only appears in one chapter of the Bible, that's Acts 16, and only a, a couple of times is named. So uh, in order to understand this encounter this person has with the Apostle Paul, you need to know who he is. So quick recap, or if you're brand new, we'll quickly explain who Paul is. So Paul is the man whose name used to be Saul. And he uh, was from a city in what is now known as modern-day Turkey. He was a Roman citizen, but he had Jewish parents, and he was part of the elite. He went to all the right schools and knew all the right people, and he was trained in very special schools to be a Pharisee, which was a political and social group who paid very strict attention to the law, Jewish law, the first five books of the Bible, and they were all about adhering to it exactly right. 
So with this training, Paul was sure he knew exactly what this long-awaited Messiah would be like. And he was sure it wasn't anything like this Jesus of Nazareth fellow. So Saul made it his life's work to get these followers of Jesus arrested and thrown into prison. That, he, that public enemy number one. Until one day when he was walking to the city of Damascus to go and round up and harass some more followers of Jesus, a bright light from the sky came and blinded him, literally made him blind. And, um, yep, like that, couldn't see. And uh, this voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who's that? The voice identified himself as Jesus and said, I've got some work for you to do. Go to the city, and I'll, I'll tell you what to do next. So Jesus sends a man named Ananias to come and heal Saul of his temporary blindness. And as soon as he can see, he changes his name to Paul. He gets baptized and now decides to make it his life's work to spread the message of Jesus. He did a total 180. It is considered the most dramatic conversion story in all of the Bible. So imagine that. It goes from the worst influence for Jesus to the best influence. And he was now committed to spreading this message through all of the Mediterranean area. Now you can imagine that not everybody was so excited. See, okay, he's going all around. I'll, I'll get to that more in just a minute. So um, he is here starting off. Antioch, and they decided to go, this church sends him out to go on this journey. And he tries to get some of the disciples to go with him, the first apostles that Jesus sent out. Goes to Jerusalem, tries to say, hey, hey guys, why don't you join me now? Well, you can imagine, they were like, um, aren't you the guy that was just throwing all those Christians in prison? Like, why would we trust you? So it was a little dicey at first. They weren't exactly too ready to invite him on their team. So um, this church from Antioch, where followers of Jesus were first called Christians, did you know that? The, that the word Christian wasn't used before that. And they didn't say it as a nice term, by the way. That came, that came later. Um, little Christs, it meant. Anyway, this church in Antioch sent Barnabas, a seasoned leader, out on a missionary journey. He takes Paul under his wing and shows them what to do, and they're going to go preaching and teaching about Jesus. And uh, he helps smooth things over and gets the other disciples to like him. And so others join them. There was um, Judas, not that same Judas, Silas, and a young man named Timothy that joined them. And they're going town to town. This is him trying to round up the people. Uh, town to town, encouraging new congregations, which grew as a result of their visits. So this is what is happening when we come to Acts chapter 16. Paul and Timothy are going from town to town, um, like that map showed, encouraging these young congregations, and they grow as a result. And literally the Holy Spirit g gives them their itinerary. So I'm going to start reading in Acts chapter um, 16, verse 5. You're welcome to follow along. And... The map will help you, I hope. They, that is Paul and Timothy, went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. 
So that's up north. You can see that, okay? All right. They were ready to go north, and the Holy Spirit said, mm, nope, go this way. And when they had come opposite Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. Once again, they wanted to go one way. God said, mm, nope, this way, this way instead. Keep going west, northwest. They wanted to stay in their own neighborhood, basically. God said, nope, keep going. And then during the night, Paul had a vision. There stood a man of Macedonia pleading with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, we immediately tried to cross over to Macedonia, being convinced that God had called us to proclaim the good news to them. Now notice it just shifted to the word we. That tells us that Luke, Dr. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, who also wrote Acts, is with them. He's on board. So now we got at least four people on board. Paul, Timothy, Silas, Luke, Barnabas, went another direction. Anyway, we set sail from Troas, that's a little island there, or the peninsula, um, took a straight course to Samothrace, that little island, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. So if you know anything about geography, we're now in northern Greece. We're in Europe. Not anywhere they had been before. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate, left the city, by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart and listened eagerly to what was said by Paul. I think there was a line missing there. Anyway, when she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. So you've probably figured out we're talking about Lydia today, which may seem a little obscure. What can we learn about a person that we have just a couple of verses about? Just makes a very brief appearance in this story. Well, perhaps more than we might expect at first glance. First, we know something about her faith. We know that she worshiped God, the God of Israel. Didn't it seem strange that Paul and Timothy were going down by the river expecting to find women to pray? Well, that's because according to Jewish law, that in order to form a synagogue, you had to have 10 male heads of households who would, could commit to being there regularly. And if there weren't, then uh, Jews could gather in the open air by a river or a sea, a body of water. So apparently they didn't have a quorum, and uh, they figured out that this European city didn't have a synagogue. So they knew, we'll go find the nearest river. I bet we'll find people praying there. So they did, and here they find these women at prayer. So we know she worshiped God. The second thing we know about Lydia is her attitude. 
Now, she could have said to these guys, um, excuse me, you're interrupting our prayer group. We didn't invite you. But instead, she has an open heart and an open mind. And she welcomes them and listens to their message, listened eagerly, it said. She was all ears, as if hearing about this person, Jesus, for the first time. We don't know if it was the first time, but maybe it was the first time the Holy Spirit had, had softened her heart and opened her ears, and she could receive it for the first time. So we know a little bit about her, her faith and her attitude. We know where she's from, the city of Thyatira, which may not seem, again, so significant, but it tells us more than you think. This is from the ancient, in the ancient kingdom of Lydia. And some scholars think maybe her name wasn't Lydia. It was like the lady from Lydia, the Lydian lady. She had some other name. We don't know for sure. But she's from Lydia, and this city is um, in that country. And this city of uh, Thyatira was home to a guild of dyers, D-Y-E-E-R-S. Did I spell it right? People who dye cloth. And, again, doesn't seem so exciting, but this was a very specific trade. They didn't dye cloth get their dye from a bottle or a box. It was a whole meticulous process of getting this substance from certain mollusks that when put under light could be arranged from indigo to dark red. It was, it was quite a craft. We also know that um, there's no mention of her father or husband. So she was probably the head of her own household likely a wealthy woman. She could have been a widow or a only daughter of um, um, an estate that she inherited. We don't know. Um, but we know a little bit about her because of her hometown. We also know her occupation. Dealer of purple cloth. Again, may not seem like a lot of information, but she is clearly both artisan and merchant. And she... Um, is probably traveling with her household, from what we can tell. And she's also, uh, again, let me just say purple, which I'm wearing today in honor of Lydia. Um, you may not understand the significance of it, but purple was a sign of nobility and wealth because of how expensive it was to, um, to make the, the purple um, garments. So you only wore purple if you were wealthy or a king and queen. Um, maybe that scene when they put a purple robe on Jesus. Again, it was to signify that he was the, the, the king of the Jews. They were mocking him, basically. But it was a color of royalty. The last thing we know about her is, well, in addition to just her dealer of purple cloth, she was a businesswoman, an entrepreneur, and before the industrial age, businesses happened in people's homes. So she probably had a sort of a cottage industry there at home. And uh, she was smart enough to choose a strategic location to sell her wares in this big port city. Think of like when you have those festivals and people come from all over and they bring their, set up their little tables and, and uh, exhibits. She knew where to go to bring her um, purple cloth to be sold. The last thing we know about Lydia is her response. She doesn't say, well, thank you very much. That was a lovely sermon, which pastors are used to hearing at the door. She is all in. You can, you can go back for a second. Um, she is all in. She, 
it's like we sang, she saw the light, right? She heard this message, and she was never the same again. And what's significant about her is she is considered the first European convert. The gospel had not made it that far until that day. She comes to faith. She gets baptized. Her whole household gets baptized, which would have included her co-workers and probably other relatives. She is all in and ready to serve. It reminds me of our new officers, our elders and deacons that were just elected. They were examined by our session, our governing body, this past Tuesday night, and they were asked um, to talk a little bit about their faith journey. There's not a test, as that word seems to imply. And they talked about their sense of call to be a deacon or elder, and some of them were so excited to serve. It's like they wanted to start yesterday. In fact, one guy was like, when do we get to visit old people? He was like, you know, (laughs) give me something to do. I'll do that. I'll help with this. Sign me up. They were just ready to go and give and serve and share their gifts. And I think the folks that heard them were, were enthusiastic, too, by their response. Well, apparently Lydia has this same kind of all-in attitude. She is saying, what, what do you need? What, what can I do to be part of this? And she says, if you believe me, then come and stay at my home. And she's not just saying, hey, come and have dinner. She's saying, I want my home to be your headquarters for your ministry here. I want this to be the hub for Christians from Europe so they can come and gather and have a place to be. And, and that's what happened. And she wouldn't take no for an answer. That's what, and she prevailed upon us means. <laughs> um, and remember, there were no church buildings in the first century. The church is the people. Those called out. They met in homes. And other women started to follow suit. Other wealthy women, often widows, would set up these house churches. And since women were considered head of the home, they were often the pastors and the leaders in these home churches. I think it's kind of fun, by the way, that we have Lauren and Risa and me up here. It's like women are leading today. It's kind of fun. So that happened at the earlier services as well. And we all wore purple and didn't plan it. How about that? Um, anyway, there, this church, this gathering in Lydia's living room became the church at Philippi which if you've ever read the book of Philippians, was Paul's favorite church. He called it his joy and crown. He's always putting the Philippians as an example of a wonderful, healthy, joy-filled church. And it all started with Lydia, with these group of women praying by the river. Who would have imagined? There was a reason that the Holy Spirit prevented Paul from going to those places he wanted to go. He wanted to go to the places he knew. He wanted to go north. He wanted to go east. And God's up saying, nope, you're not going there. Nope, keep going. Keep going north. Keep going west. That was not his idea. He would have stuck to his own neighborhood, so to speak. Have you ever had a time where you sensed you were supposed to go somewhere and you thought God wanted you to go there too? And then door closed? Or maybe there was a detour that you didn't expect? Felt frustrated? Wait, wait, I know this is where I'm supposed to go. But then later, maybe even years later, you went, oh, that's why. 
That's why God closed that door. That's why I went on that detour. It was for this better, greater thing down here that I didn't know about at the time, that I couldn't see, but God could see. See, when we get a vision and believe that it's from God, it's really easy to start thinking about all the obstacles, all the things in the way. I'm sure Paul was like, I'm not going there. That's far away. That's going to take a long time. I've never been there before. I don't know anybody there. And I don't know if my boat will make it that far. I'm sure he had a whole list of, here's all the reasons why I think this is a bad idea. Don't we do that? When God calls somewhere, no, 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 not, not me. Uh, I'm too old and I'm not good at that. And plus there's all these other people. And now at this time, and this is not very convenient or practical. It's kind of expensive. And can you imagine if Paul had ignored the vision and that dream that God gave him and listed all those reasons, like, oh, that was just a silly dream. Oh, I'm not going to pay attention to that. The gospel might not have ever made it out of the Middle East. It could have been just this sort of Middle East sect of Jesus followers. It would have never made it to Europe. And think what doors that opened. Rome, the Pope, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Tower Hill Church. Not exactly in that order, but you get the idea. None of those would have existed if Paul said, ah, that's, uh, God really doesn't know. That, that's just a silly dream. Maybe I, you know, ate too much before I went to bed or something. I don't know. He could have just ignored it. What does it look like to be all in? the way that Lydia was. What does that look like? To respond to a vision that God gives us without thinking about the obstacles, without listing all the things that just make it not practical. I mean, look at Lydia. She welcomed these traveling missionaries into her home to live with her without hesitating for a second. Could you do that? What does the thought about opening your home to long-term guests at a moment's notice do to you? How's that feel? How about the idea of having strangers to come to dinner or even live with you for a little while? Do we get nervous? Do we feel judged? Do we worry our house isn't nice enough or clean enough? Do we put more focus on what our home looks like than we do in making sure that our guests feel welcome and comfortable? The home organizing guru called the fly lady uh, thinks she has an understanding of why people don't open their home more. She talks about uh, something called chaos, C-H-A-O-S, can't have anyone over syndrome. I think my family has suffered from that on more than one occasion, more times than I'd like to admit. And I confess I am guilty of temporarily hiding clutter in closets, in garages, in basements, more times than I'd like to admit. Last Saturday, um, I had this idea. 
of inviting a few families from our neighborhood carpool to come over for a backyard barbecue. The timing was not ideal, but it was the only date that would work for everybody before school began and the new carpool would start. And so I was just convinced this is what we're going to do. Never mind that we were in the midst of home renovation projects. Never mind that our son was ready to go out west to Oregon and his stuff was sprawled all over the living room. Never mind that our parents were coming to pick up our daughters and niece to take them on a trip, which they just got back for. They came right from the boat, basically, an hour ago. We had lots of moving parts, and the house was a mess. And my family thought it sounded a little crazy. But I had a vision of what could be possible. Imagine adults and kids and pets getting to know each other and younger kids meeting older kids in a safe place so they didn't feel intimidated when they saw them at school and new sense of community developing in our neighborhood. Well, to carry out this vision, my family might say that I went a little crazy. I wrote out long lists of chores, and I realized there weren't enough places to sit on the patio, so we had to go, we didn't have a table, so I had to go buy some patio furniture. And then I realized, well, if we're going to have a barbecue, we need some yard games, so I had to go buy at least one yard game, you know, like cornhole or frisbee, whatever we, we needed. And then when I was out in the yard, I realized we had a whole lot of weeds, so I had to, you know, take care of the weeds. And then when I was weeding, the dog started digging holes and found a dead bird, so I had to fill the holes and put the bird in one of the holes and bury that. And then I was, wait, I got to buy food, and I got to prepare the food. And my husband was like, time out. Come on back. Come on back. Reality check. And when I stopped and I remembered the most gracious hospitality that I had ever experienced, I realized that it didn't have anything to do with porch furniture or backyard games or weed-free yards. Years ago, when my husband and I were on a mission trip in Haiti, we, um, golly, this is almost 20 years ago, Claire was a baby, um, the, we would worship with this family in this rural villages, this, this congregation, and then afterwards they sent us out with different families for time of just hospitality and visiting. And um, Daniel and I went to the home of this family of seven. It was a two-room home about the size of the shed in our backyard, smaller than a beach club cabana with a dirt floor. And uh, the parents spoke no English, but the teenage son spoke enough to translate in Creole between us all. And um, the kids sort of lined up against the wall while Daniel and I and the parents and the teenage son sat in this little circle. Uh, and our table was a red milk crate turned upside down with a bandana spread over the top like a tablecloth. Felt like royalty. And then the father pulled out what you'd think was fine aged wine. He had two bottles of Coca-Cola that he had been saving for months and months knowing that the Americans were coming. 
And they only had enough money for two. So they watched while we drank the Coke. I don't even like Coke, but I liked it that day. They treated us like a king and queen. And it didn't have anything to do with what we usually think of hospitality. Not the food, not the furniture, not the yard games. And as soon as I remembered that, that it was about us feeling welcomed and loved and accepted, I was able to not worry about the unfinished projects and the unweeded yard and the not-so-clean house. Turns out none of that really mattered anyway because the bugs started eating us alive within the first five minutes, which drove everybody inside, and then the heavens opened up and there was a huge thunderstorm, and everyone ended in the living room in a circle on the floor in the chairs, kind of like a Young Life meeting, you know, when you pack all the teenagers into your living room? It's kind of like that. And we had a great time. And people lingered and stayed and talked. Now, I'm not suggesting that the only way you can be all in for Jesus is to invite people to your home at a moment's notice. But I do think that our willingness to share our resources openly and to trust God with a sense of timing is a pretty good indicator of how much we trust him. How much we trust God with our plans and our resources. And I'd like to close with a story about a woman who had a vision. And I imagined it sounded pretty far-fetched at first. But she did not put limits on God. There's a woman in Nashville named Becca Stevens. And she was the daughter of a minister from Connecticut. Grew up in Nashville. And she... Um, was studying to be an Episcopal priest in, sorry, she's a little blurry, studying to be an Episcopal priest at uh, Vanderbilt Divinity School. And she had already established herself as a leader, an achiever. She was voted most likely to succeed in high school. She was a Phi Beta Kappa math major, homecoming queen of her college, as a seminary student, she volunteered in some local efforts that were very different from her suburban high school experience. She was helping homeless women, many of whom had been involved in human trafficking, and many of whom had been suffering and struggling with addiction. When she learned that most of them had been abused as children between the ages of 7 and 11, her heart changed. And she had compassion on this group of women that she had not previously understood. She began to understand the cycle of how trauma and poor self-esteem and social isolation often made them easy targets to be exploited. And then one day, Becca had a vision about providing hospitality for these women who had survived abuse and violence and addictions. She didn't just want to invite them to her backyard for a barbecue. She wanted to provide a safe haven, a place where they could heal and get off the streets 
and restart their lives. And so in 1997, with her entrepreneurial spirit, Becca invited five such women to a new home, a free and safe place to heal, to, to overcome addiction, to restart their lives, and she called the home Magdalene. It was light and bright and beautiful and free during their stay for two years. And it was a place they felt welcomed and loved. And her vision didn't stop there. She knew housing was one thing, but these women needed medical care. They needed therapy. And then she realized that to break the cycle, she needed to empower and employ these women so they could transition back into community. These women who stayed at Magdalene learned how to make products that promote healing, bath and body oils and candles, and she started thistle farms. And she used the example of the thistle because she said, we take weeds that people despise and we turn them into something beautiful. The same could be said for many of these women who are tossed aside and often get blamed by society for their situation. So Thistle Farms became a thing. In addition to free housing, like I said, they added these other things, and they opened a cafe, employing the women as baristas, and their model was Love Heals. Look it up online. I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but it is amazing. And Becca has since won awards, and the CNN hero, she's gotten two honorary doctorates, all these accolades that really don't matter to her. She is all about the mission. From this house of five women that started with her vision, it grew into six houses. That's what it looked like. She's like glowing now. Remember the first picture? She kind of looked like nice and happy. Now she's like glowing with her love heels. One house and five women grew into six houses with 30 women at a time. There are now hundreds of graduates, more than 100 women on the mailing list. Thistle Farms now helps employ more than 1,800 women worldwide. They have a national network of more than 40 sister communities. One of our new elders, newly elected elders, Scott Avery, has been very involved in one of the sister communities in Stamford, Connecticut. Where's Scott? See, he usually sits like right by the pole. Where'd he go? I know he's here. Scott Avery. Okay, Nice Scott Avery, I know he's here. I saw him, maybe he's in the narthex. He can tell you about it and all the, what, how it's been life-changing for him. Anyway, this model has been used um, by groups throughout the world, and they share their strategies with anyone that wants to come. They have visitors and conferences, and it is really amazing. So one more slide of Becca and these women. You can just tell their lives are, have been transformed, full of joy and light and ready to share and get back into the community. In fact, this one woman um, with the blue shirt, with the big earrings, she said someone saw her later. She's like, Doris, is that you? Like, didn't even recognize her as this woman now, full, full of life and joy. So, what does it mean to be all in? What does it mean to be like Lydia? To be like Becca? to have a faith that trusts that God will lead us to the places we're supposed to go, to have an attitude of an open heart and an open mind and flexibility, willingness to 
change our plans at a moment's notice and to respond with, yes, Lord, I'm all in. Not my will, but yours be done. And as we sang, you know, what does it look like to trust you to lead us where our feet will not wander? Are we ready to be all in like that? I hope we will. Amen.